Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Marty Miller, Regional Master Instructor, and here with my good friend, Regional Master Instructor, Miss Wendy Batts. Wendy, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Great. I'm always looking forward to spending some more time with you and jumping into a new topic this week. We are going to cover a two-part series on foot and ankle. So, Wendy, I'll let you kind of introduce the topic, how we came up with it, and we'll go from there. Absolutely. So, you know, after we went through, obviously, the hip, and then we've talked about some of the different exercises, such as the push-up and the squat, Marty and I were talking about, you know, the area that we feel is extremely important, which is the foot and ankle complex. And so we wanted to make this a two-part series. So today we're going to talk a lot about the anatomy, looking at the bones, looking at the muscles, and how it can affect your arch and uh, and then after we do that, we're going to identify some different assessments that you guys can do so you can see how you know someone is moving. And then at that point, we're going to do our second series, which will be to how to correct some imbalances that you may note. And so when we look at this slide for the intro, that's basically what we're covering. So as you can see, once uh, we go through some of the anatomy, um, we're going to look at, uh, you know, the arthrokinematics, geez, which is basically the joints. And then, uh, and then we'll take you through the process. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to show slides here in a little bit about a lot of anatomy. And do we expect you to memorize it? Absolutely not. But we just want to make you aware of it because there's a lot more in the anatomy than we cover. Because again, you know, we want to go over what you need to know, what you would utilize each and every day when our course. But today, we're going to just introduce you to maybe some new terms or maybe some deeper level of anatomy just for your own sake. So that way you understand how intricate the foot is and how important it is to make sure that we include that in our overall training. So as we advance here in our slides, we're going to move forward and we're going to go over a lot of topics. But again, you know, like I said, this isn't that something you have to memorize. So we'll start with the bones and joints. We'll move into soft tissue, which includes the muscles and tendons and ligaments. As Wendy said, we'll talk about the joint mechanics or the arthrokinematics, and then some common movement impairments that you see each and every day. And from there, next week, we'll get into the solutions behind it. So, Wendy, you ready to move into the anatomy a little bit? I think we're ready. I mean, I think there's also something to be said about the five kinetic chain checkpoints, and I wanted to, to touch on that first. I mean, the reason we have someone properly lined up is we want to see where deviations occur. And so you'll notice that with every one of our webinars and when we're talking about it, we usually start at the foot and ankle and work our way up. And a lot of that is due to the regional independence model. When remember, as one thing is out of alignment, it can really affect the entire kinetic chain. And so when we're looking at the foot and ankle, we're just talking about 26 bones. Now, remember, there's 206 in the body. So 26 bones just in the foot. I mean, that's a lot. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong if you're not standing properly or you don't have you know, good arch support and alignment through the muscles itself. And so, you know, Marty, I'll, I'll have you kind of take us through these, but I think each one of these bones that you're going to talk about, they play a significant role in, in how we move. Yeah. And when you look at all these bones, think about what happens when you're running, you're jumping, you're landing, you're changing directions, or doing balance exercises. But also imagine what happens joint by joint by joint when there's faulty movement patterns. Again, we're not expecting you to memorize all that. But when you look at this image of all those intricate bones, all those joints, which we'll show in a minute, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, there's something wrong with my foot and ankle. It's like, where do we begin? Right. And we have orthopedic surgeons that specialize just in foot and ankle, because I think a lot of people are like I have a foot and ankle problem. Well, it could be you know, one of countless different things. Now, that's not what we're here for today. 
But I think that if you can take away how important it is to get back to structural integrity of the foot and ankle, get back into how important it is to go either through your corrective exercise, which could be just a targeted warm-up and or stabilization training for the foot and ankle. Obviously, from there, when we get that working, think about what happens up the kinetic chain. We've covered that countless different times. Mm-hmm. But you know, I always shockingly want to revert back to why Wendy and I love the model so much. So as we go through the bones, again, it'd be fabulous if you memorize them, but it's not necessary. But the key thing here is we've got them listed for you. So the talus is that bone at the top of the foot that forms a joint uh, with the two bones of the lower leg, tibia and fibula. And then the calcaneus is the largest bone, which lies underneath the talus. That's your heel bone. So as we go into dorsiflexion, that talus has to slide posteriorly. And a lot of people, that bone gets locked up. They can't get into dorsiflexion. So the only thing I'm going to say here is if you're foam rolling the right muscles and you're stretching properly and they have a pinching in the front of their foot right there where that talus would be and they're not getting better, that may be where you need to refer out. Because on occasion, a physical therapist, a chiropractor or certain types of doctors may need to go in there and mobilize those joints, that bone to get it to slide better because sometimes it just gets stuck. So again, if they get a pinching sensation in the front as they go into a squat, right where that talus would meet the tibia, that might be a good sign that, hey, I'm going to do my foam rolling. I'm going to do my stretching. But just understand that if that bone doesn't slide properly, you may always be saying, hey, I can't get anything better. That's where we've talked about this before. You have to have a group of professionals around you that can do different things. Wendy's a massage therapist. I'm an athletic trainer. We both know great physical therapists. We both have either chiropractors and or different type of doctors that can go in there and get things moving or look at it if there is any pain or injury. So just want to kind of leave you with that. That's common when people have really tight calves that that uh, talus will not slide posteriorly. Mm -hmm. You've heard of the other bones, the tarsals. Those are the five bones in the midfoot. Your metatarsals as we go towards the forefoot. And then we have our phalanges and then our sesamoid bones underneath. So again, a complex joint. But again, when you go through the OPT model, we're teaching you how to keep it in neutral. We'll talk about subtalar neutral in a couple slides. We teach you what muscles tend to be overactive, what tends to be underactive. We'll show that here in a little bit. And then hopefully everything else that you see here kind of falls into place. And that person has a healthy foot and ankle complex. So, Wendy, anything to add there? No, I think you uh, pretty much just nailed that. So, uh, but, you know, I will say this, too. It's also important when you're doing your assessments. And I know we're going to talk a lot more about the assessments here in a little while to consider, too, you know, when you're getting your subjective information to ask about their shoes. Because obviously, you know, if somebody's wearing high heel shoes and their toe box is in a shortened position or, you know, if they have a wider foot and they're trying to, you know, get them into cuter tennis shoes because they like it and it matches their outfit, you know, all of that can play an important role of what's happening and how you can lock up some of these major, you know, joints in the foot and ankle itself. And so and that really kind of brings us into the joints. And so when you're thinking about the joints of the foot, you know, with the exception of the big toe, the toes have three joints. Joints. And so when you're looking at the different joints here listed, the, the MTP joint, you know, that is the, the big joint at the base of your big toe. And that joint itself can play a significant role if it is not moving properly when you're trying to do some explosive sports. Like to me, with us um, working with a lot of the NBA players, that's the very first joint we look at. We look to see how mobile that joint is because it truly can affect everything going on into the foot and ankle complex. And so, you know, that's the big one. And, And again, if you're not 
Um, you don't have the scope of practice to move it. You want to just see if, it, you know, if the foot itself is moving and you can do that as a trainer, if you want to have them just kind of play around and like move their foot to see, you know, is it spread out or are they spreading out those muscles at the bottom of their foot? And so, I mean, as you can see too, you've got your proximal joints, your distal joints. And then of course, each toe again has the two joints. So you've got your your, all the ones listed here. I know, Marty, you were going to go into a little more detail about each one. So I'm not going to steal your thunder seeing how you're doing a great job and I'm sitting back and learning myself. But, uh, you know, just keep in mind, each one of these joints do play a significant role in your movement. Yeah, I, I, Wendy, you know, you covered it great. I don't think we need to go into too, too much detail of what mm -hmm. happens at every single joint because, again, that's out of our scope of practice. <laughs> and as I said earlier, there are specialists that focus just on foot and ankle because there's so many things that can go wrong in a sense from an injury standpoint. But, you know, when you look at the mechanism of the foot is think about how much pressure is going through that foot when people are running and jumping. And then again, you put people in improper footwear. You know, I've seen and Wendy, I'm sure you've seen it, that X-ray of a female in a high heel shoe. What's going on? It's I mean, year after year of that, the arthritis and the things that would change in that. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, hey, I want to get in shape. I want to go do a high intensity class. They throw sneakers on and they've been wearing elevated heels for years, right? This is where this is so important. And I'm sure Wendy, you and I will get into some barefoot training, maybe techniques next week. But if possible, I love to stay connected to the ground. If your facility allows it or even giving them some drills at home. I, you know, for years did martial arts and I love that because I was barefoot on a fairly uneven surface. I mean, it was a pretty rigid mat, but there's a little bit. So I had to get those muscles in my foot and ankle connected neurologically. So I think a lot of people, they get, you know, from, they go right from work, throw on gym shoes, go on seated pieces of equipment, or they, you know, and they don't really get that foot in the right position, which we will cover next week with the right techniques, but connected to the ground. So I know our yoga friends love that grounding and all that kind of stuff, but there is a point in time where I would highly encourage your clients to train either barefoot or in a sock, depending on the facility, or at least give them some work at home. Cause we're going to show in a couple slides, all the layers of the intricate muscles that work within the foot to protect those 30 joints and 26 bones. Yes. And I mean, that's going to bring us into even the next slide. And of course, what's going to move the bones are going to be the, you know, muscles. And so now when we start talking about, you know, the foot itself, we've got to think about the arch of the foot. So, you know, basically the foot has three arches, if you will. So you've got two longitudinal, you've got the medial and lateral arches and one anterior transverse arch. But when you're thinking about these arches, you know, you're going to think about the bones that, you know, they're formed by. And then you have to think about the muscles that actually support those arches. And so, you know, there's oftentimes, and Marty, I know you've heard this multiple times when you're looking at someone's assessment. And I know we're going to talk about this shortly, but it's important to think, OK, when somebody is sitting there and they don't have their shoes on and you're looking at their foot and they're in a seated position, so they're not even making contact at the ground and you notice that they have an arch in their foot. However, when they stand up, their feet flatten. There's a lot of um, disconnect between the proper muscles that are going to help keep that those arches and the support where the lift that, that you're supposed to have. Um, so, so that's when they'll say, oh, but I've always been flat footed. And you'll hear that so many times. And if you're, you know, there are people that are born with flat feet, but they look flat whether you're standing on them or not. And it's not as common as you may think. And so that's one thing I wanted to point out because 
it is going to be extremely important as we move on and start talking about some of the muscles to think, okay, if you don't have proper arch alignment, it literally will cause things to happen at the knee, at the hip, and even at the shoulder because of, of the connectability between the entire body itself. Yeah. And I was a perfect example when I was young. I don't remember the why, but I remember my parents take me uh, to a podiatrist, I'm assuming, and I was given orthotics for years. <laughs> yes. For years. And when you look at my foot, non-weight bearing, I have a beautiful arch. I think so. But there's the arch there. But I, you know, when you look at me weight bearing, then there's a change in the position of the calcaneus mm -hmm. where it would present, especially back when I was a kid, as a foot flattening. Because, yeah, my arch went towards the ground, but my arch was there the entire time. So for years, I walked around with orthotics where I didn't need them. And I should have been on a more flexibility and strengthening program to correct it. And I still struggle with it now. Again, I could always spend more time on it. I do put my work in, but you know, for 20 plus years, I was just given a, an artificial support and it never corrected the true biomechanical issues. So again, you, you know, could be out of your scope of practice. Just watch them non-weight bearing versus weight bearing. We'll go through the assessments and we'll show you what's going on in the foot and ankle. And again, you have to strengthen those muscles that would give that arch the support it needs. Cause by itself, it's not designed to carry your full body weight. Mm -hmm. And it, yes. And we're, as we go through and we start talking about the muscles, I think that's kind of when the aha moment really happens, because when you think about it, we've got inversion and eversion. So as you can see the picture, we're moving your foot in different directions. So when we're talking about inversion. It's the movement in which the inferior calcaneus is so just the heel bone. So when we talk about it, we're not trying to be technical. Just think the heel bone is going to move medially or on the inside. So the bottom of the foot is actually going to face inward. And so hopefully, you know, that picture makes sense because you've got to think where is the arch in relation to the heel? And then the same thing with eversion, we're talking about that. It's in which the inferior calcaneus, so again, the heel bone moves laterally. So the bottom of the foot faces outward. And so as Marty was saying, he had inversion going on, meaning his foot went inward and that would cause, um, you know, more flattening of the foot, if you will. And so, you know, it's important to kind of think what's happening. You want it to be in a neutral position. You don't want inversion or eversion the entire time. You want to try to find that happy medium in order to have good balance within the foot. Yeah. And as an athletic trainer, you know, one of the most injured joints is an ankle with a sprain and the high percentage is this inversion ankle sprain where, you know, they, mm. they twist their ankle and then they tear the ligaments on that, that lateral side. So again, as Wendy was saying with what was going on with me is as I squatted, I would go into that eversion. So you'll see the medial part of that foot would go towards the ground. So to a doctor, to somebody else, like, oh, their arch is flattening. No, it's just, it was purely eversion. We'll cover the muscles that would be overactive and underactive. But like I said, it was very easy to fix it with an orthotic because if I was on the orthotic, it helped it. But what happens when I got off the orthotic, I was right back to having that eversion. And so I know we're going to get this question. I'm going to go ahead and answer it probably now is if you have a client that does have orthotics, what should you do about it? And so I'll give my answer and then Marty, I'll kick it back to you because what I usually do is obviously when we're doing the overhead squat or any of the appropriate assessments per client, you have them remove their shoes, which means they're not going to be in their orthotic. And then I can see truly what's happening. I can see their foot without weight on it. I can see their foot once moved, you know, with weight and static posture. And then what happens when we start adding some of those tr uh, transitional assessments? And 
then I make my notes accordingly. It doesn't matter if they have orthotics or not. What I try to do at that point then is to have them remove their orthotics when they're with me, um, especially during the um, extended warm-up period. So when we're going through proper flexibility and when we're going through core balance and plyo, so I can try to work on proper alignment of the foot and ankle. And so when you're especially in balance training, if you're really trying to get those muscles to reactivate and you feel that burning sensation at the bottom of your foot, that's actually a good thing because you're starting to wake up muscles that have not really been activating like they should. And, and I say this every time we talk about the arches of the foot, it seems to be okay every single time I do a leg press to try to get to, I'm going to throw up because I'm pushing so hard and not burning in my quad because I know that's what I'm focusing on. However, if you have someone standing on one foot and they feel the bottom of their foot burning, they freak out and then they stop. So remember, you're trying to focus on very specific muscles. And so if you feel a burning sensation, that's actually a good thing because hopefully you're working on proper arch alignment. And Marty and I will go into more detail of how to make an arch with someone that has a very flat foot. But just if you can try to train them without the orthotics, you're building up some um, proper movement patterns. And then if they have to wear their orthotics because that's just how you know they're on their feet all day, that's fine. However, you want to try to get them off of that crutch and try to really work on on that, because how many times do people wear flip flops, walk on the floor and all that other fun stuff? Yeah, I agree 100 percent. The only thing that um, you know I've seen is I have somebody come in that has orthotics and they're willing to do the training that I'm asking them to do. Single leg balance, anterior tip, mm -hmm. posterior tip, medial gastroc. And, but they've been running for years. I'm absolutely yeah. at that point, not going to have them run without their orthotics. Oh yeah. It's a conversation of maybe over time being able to wean them off that, but you know, it is, it's common. And again, you know, speak to their uh, provider of, you know, who, who they're working with, with the orthotics, et cetera. It's, it's a dialogue, but it's a, it's a transition and maybe they never take uh, the orthotics out if they're running. Cause that's what they feel. But we're working towards improving the proper biomechanics to give them the option to. Yes. And, and to, to, to make sure that I, I, I'm very clear. Yes. If they have to wear their orthotics because they go out in life, they're on their feet, they're doing a specific sport, especially an explosive sport, and they need that arch, the arch support, then absolutely. However, just in that, on that part, then I'll try to keep their shoes off if I can and it's safe and they don't mind being barefoot at the gym. But then, of course, when we get into some of the, the more um, resistance exercises, if we need to put them back on, we absolutely will. Awesome. Excellent. So move forward here. Yes. Let's get into pronation and supination. So this is actually what we really see mainly in the um, in the assessment process. And so when we're talking about pronation, as you can see here, um, it's the you know multiplanar movement of the foot and ankle complex when it's consisting of eversion, dorsiflexion, ankle abduction, and it's associated with force reduction. And then we've got supination, which is the opposite of that. And so when we're, when we're actually looking at someone and they're in movement, we're really getting a good feel of what's happening at the foot and ankle complex by looking at them in a posterior view and looking at their Achilles tendon. Because as you know, when you're barefoot, that sticks out in the back. And so you can truly see what's happening at the foot and ankle in a more clear position. Um, and so Marty, you want to kind of talk a little more about that? Yeah. So when we're looking at force reduction or force production, it's not a one plane of motion type of activity. So we went through what, you know, inversion, eversion was, it is a, you know, a single, uh, 
it's single motion in one plane of motion, I should say. Sorry about that. But pronation and supination, it is multiplanar. So if I jump up, so I'm going to start with the picture on the right, you'll see that I have to go into plantar flexion. You'll see the three parts here of eversion, I'm sorry, um, supination is the uh, inversion, plantar flexion, and ankle adduction. Now, it's not extreme, it's slight, <laughs> right? It's some of all three planes of motion. And then as I'm coming down and landing properly to absorb that energy, think of the stretch reflex. I have to load that tissue. So if I want, I can then use that as a coiling effect to go back into supination for um, some type of jump or run, etc. So as I come down, it's going to go into eversion, dorsiflexion, and ankle abduction but it's in within that neutral position. You're not seeing extreme. So you'd have to truly look at this at, you know, at slower speed to catch it. You know, the eye, if someone's jumping to land, is not going to see, you know, you're not going to see that. One key thing though, is we've always talked about it. If I land with my feet straight, I know I'm better off. But if I land with my feet externally rotated, then I know I'm not going to be in the proper pronation and supination. I'm not going to either produce force or reduce force properly. That's why we're so sticklers to the five kinetic chain checkpoints. And I think it's important. I mean, as you said, I mean, so with every movement that we do, we do have to have pronation and supination. Like it's part of movement to your point, Marty. And, and you said it so perfectly within neutral. And so that, you know, so if you see someone and they stay pronated or you notice like, you know, from the back end that their feet come in and they stay that way, think about how much longer it takes to go back into proper position and then go into, you know, into their jump. And then again, to your point, if you don't, if you can't control what's happening at the foot and ankle and then all of a sudden you land, it's just, it's a harder landing. You're not absorbing things through the arch of the foot. It is going to impact the knees and the hips. And so it's also going to decrease your ability on your vertical as well as power production and everything else. And a perfect example I'll use myself is I still evert. I don't know if I'll ever correct it 100%. <laughs> don't know. And that's okay because I'm not playing the NBA. I'm not jumping up and down, you know, for hours a day with what I do for a living. So again, I do want to do some obviously higher power type of stuff. I want to be still explosive. I want to have all that kind of fun. But if I'm just for a point, if I am everting on my assessment, how can I jump and land properly? There's no way, right? So I work it. I go through the corrective exercise continuum. I do little progressions where I just go up to my tiptoes and I come down and, and I know what to focus on. But if somebody's got their feet excellently rotated or evert and you're going to go right to jumps, not saying not to do it, just understand that they will not be as effective because they're already showing you that they can't maintain neutral. Then when you get into the higher speed and higher explosive, it's going to be harder for them to do pronation and supination properly. But once again, that's why we have corrective into stability into strength endurance, then into power because you should be working on this as you go through. And with all the joints that we just talked about, I mean, if things aren't firing properly, think about the amount of force that you're putting on joints that weren't meant to have that amount. And so when people talk about, like Marty said, if the, the um, I call it the talus, but you call it the talus, I think, but, or either way. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's not working right, or if your cuboid drops and stuff like that, all of that can play a significant role in the proper arch alignment. And then, um, and then it's more structural than just muscular as well. Excellent. All right. So moving on. 
So when we talk about subtalar neutral, I touched on this very um, briefly, but you can really see what's happening in the posterior view. And so when we talked about pronation, you can see that that foot is flattening towards the ground or the arch of the foot is collapsing, if you will. And then you've got neutral, which is ideal. So when you're looking at someone and you're looking at their Achilles tendon in relation to the middle part of their heel bone. And so when you're looking straight down, everything looks properly lined up you know, that's ideal. And then supination, I don't see supination as much. Um, someone with an extreme high, high arch that can't control it maybe. But to me, I don't see this one as often. Um, I see pronation, unfortunately, a lot. Um, and again, that's usually from weaker muscles that are not firing correctly to maintain proper arch alignment. Um, but, you know, so when you're looking at it, when we're talking about subtalar neutral, if you had a manual therapy license and you had someone that wasn't weight bearing, then basically you put your hand pretty much on the talus and then you would try to move their foot into a position to get it as, as equal on both sides of your finger. So between your index finger and thumb, and then try to find that neutral position and then go into some stretching. So that would be if you're doing a partner assisted or if you can touch in order to stretch, you wanna put someone in subtalar neutral and then provide the stretch to get maximal stretch on that. Um, however, you don't have that license, just make sure that their foot is even as possible and then go into a stretch. But but just visually weight bearing, this is what you would see to find out, can they maintain neutral or not? Yeah, and a lot of personal trainers understand to reset someone's spine in neutral before they exercise, right? You know, tip your pelvis forward, tip it backward, find neutral. We've done a good job as an industry, I think, focusing on that, where we've probably done not such a good job is do we set the person up this same way when they're standing? So the way I kind of teach it is if you've got your, again, feet straight, if you got your toes and heel on the ground without moving your any of your toes off the ground or your heel, I just have them rock their arch back and forth. They'll start mm -hmm. to learn that motion. They'll see that it comes up to the knee and their hips involved, shockingly. But I tell them, go all the way down, come all the way up, find the middle. And if I should be able to slide, just attack right underneath your arch. Now, this is for somebody that can create an arch. If it's that one person that's truly flat footed, different story. But I would say by and large, over 90% or more of the clients I have trained or train do have an arch. I'm just giving you a rough number in my case. So if I'm doing a single leg balance exercise, if I'm even doing standing bicep curls, like foot and ankle, hips, shoulders back, let's go. Because why would I not want that foot and ankle in that proper neutral position, regardless of the exercise they're doing? And I think this is one of the areas that totally goes by the wayside. And even when I'm doing my walking lunges, I'm focusing as I'm warming up. My first set's always going to be in that stabilization phase. I'm really focused on what happens when my foot hits the ground. Can I keep that arch in the right position? Because if I keep my arch in the right position, guess where my knee's going to be? Guess where my hip's going to be? It has a better chance. And I'm getting that accidental exercise of getting those muscles working. So if there's one takeaway from this, I mean, hopefully there's a lot, but if there's one you can put in place go back and start with foot and ankle and get them to find neutral before mm -hmm. any exercise they're doing standing for sure. Well, and I say, you know, that's fantastic because I do that as well. But instead of just the rocking part, my clients and I as well, I'm very visual. So I always tell them that imagine you have a grape and I'm putting it underneath the arch of your foot. And so I'm telling them at that point, when they go into pronation, their foot flattens that they just squished my grape. And so my cueing is, hey, you're squishing the grape and they know just to kind of lift up a little. Now, how do you teach someone how to make an arch? I mean, the easiest way is, as Marty said, it's important that all 
toes remain on the ground, because then at that point, you're going to dig the big toe in and kind of shift the weight out more towards the outside or the lateral part of the foot. And that will usually increase the arch position. So if someone's completely flat, it'll just be slight. However, they're going to build those muscles up. And so um, you just don't want to rock onto the side and your, you know, your toes aren't planted. And once you do that, and then you're cueing someone, if they fall into pronation, that was what you saw in the assessment. You can always say, Hey, you're squishing my arch, you know, and they are squishing my grape, make your arch. And they, they visually understand what you're talking about. And so um, whatever cueing is going to work for you, but that arch positioning is extremely important. And so for me, I'm like, you're squishing my grape. They know. I guess I'm just mean. I would just physically put a thumbtack there. <laughs> right? <laughs> not saying to do that. And I'm no. not saying to do that. But. No. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. So next, when we when we look at this, we're finally getting into the muscles. So there's 20 muscles that give the foot its shape, support, and the ability to move. And so we're going to talk about the main muscles of the foot. So, of course, we have the posterior tib. So that's going to support the foot or the foot's arches. So when we're going into plantar flexion and inversion and then the anterior tibialis. So when we're talking about that, that allows the foot to move upward. So when we're talking about dorsiflexion and inversion. And then we've always talked in the past, if you've been in the industry for a while, people call it the peroneals. Or you've got your fibularis or fibulari if you're talking about multiple, like if you're talking about both. Um, and the thing is, is fibularis is now the more common one. That's the one that's you know more and more in your textbooks. That's what you're going to see. However, it's the same. And you know when the people will ask like why the the name change. I mean, fibularis is in the lateral compartment. So the main purpose of that is when we're talking about it, that's going to be it. It'll go into eversion and plantar flexion of the ankle. But, you know, that that one particular area when we're talking about fibularis itself, you know, that's going to form half of the anatomical stirrup of your arch. So when you're thinking about that, but that's why it's also important to think about the anterior tib, because that's also going to connect on the same muscles of the bottom of the foot. And that's when we think about proper balance of the arch. And that's why both of those are so, so important. And if the peroneals are going to, you know, go in and become overactive, how it can become underactive on the anterior tip because of, of them attaching to the same place and not able to control that medial balance of the foot. And so that one to me is extremely important. That's one that you will commonly see on the overactive and underactive side. And that's why. But then, of course, we have the extensors that are going to help raise the toes, making it possible for us to step. And then, of course, the flexors that are going to help stabilize the toes and are going to you know, help us with moving forward and, and, and propulsing forward. Yep. Great. Now, I think you covered everything. I just think that it's important to understand which ones to inhibit and lengthen, which we'll cover, as well as which ones need to be activated. And again, I'm always working on those posterior tips and interior tips. It's just it's my thing. Yes, yes, yes. I'm telling you, you know, that's uh, super important as well as your yeah. gastroc, if you will. So, yeah. right. <laughs> And then, of course, your glutes and everything else. But we'll get in that. I promise we will get into all of the fun stuff. So, yes, we're looking at the muscles. We're looking at the bones. Obviously, those are going to be important. And I know um, we're talking about the differences between intrinsic and in. <clears throat> some of the different muscles, excuse me, of the foot. When we're talking about the intrinsic muscles here, they're located with the foot and they're responsible for the fine motor actions of the foot. So Marty, do you want to talk about the, the muscles for the digits? 
Yes. So obviously we talk about the anterior tip a lot, which brings the entire foot up. It's not supposed to control the toes. So I see a lot of people as they either go into a squat, they'll see their big toe or their toes kind of wiggle. Or if they're doing an anterior tip exercise, they'll see their toes kind of pull back. Well, guess what you're doing? You're compensating. And the extensor digitorum brevis and hallucis brevis, they're trying to help for a weak anterior tip. They're there to assist, but at a very small level, the anterior tip is much bigger, much more powerful into that dorsiflexion. So that's another good thing to see. If you see somebody squatting and their foot's on the ground, you see their toes wiggling, that's showing the anterior tips like, I need some help. Or if you have them doing the banded exercise or whatever exercise you're doing and you see their toes kind of come into it, you know that the anterior tip is trying to recruit a synergist to assist. Obviously, those muscles are there to pick your toes up off the ground. And, you know, they're not very powerful muscles, but they will help. So a lot of times if somebody's more advanced, when I have them do an anterior tip, I actually have them try to curl their toes just a little bit. Mm -hmm because that would shut down these muscles. And you'd be shocked how much limited range of motion all of a sudden they get. So again, those are advanced techniques, and but just kind of food for thought on how you can play around with those muscles by, if they're trying to help, have the person curl their foot a little bit as you're doing that dorsiflexion inversion. And now you're really isolating the anterior tip. Um, and if these muscles are weak too, oftentimes some of the, the uh, clients will complain that they get cramps in the bottom of their toes or the bottom of their foot. And, you know, a lot of times it's the intrinsic muscles that may be weak or like to your point, they're trying to compensate with so many other muscles. So, you know, just remember, you know, if you need to, to work on the intrinsic muscles, it'll be important to, I know some things we did in physical therapy were like picking up marbles and putting them in a, um, you know, in like a, a cup with their toes. And so you're working on the little fine motor muscles. However, you're also working in the foot and ankle itself. So there's a lot of little cool tricks that you can do. Um, and to your point, take take those out doing the anterior tip. That's definitely uh, challenging for some. <laughs> I didn't want to call you out. I said, so oh, hey, I can be honest, but yes, <laughs> when we put this together, I know we, we talked about it. We just want to show how much is in the foot and ankle, right? We talked about the bones and the joints, but there's four layers of these intrinsic smaller muscles that we generally don't cover with our content with NASM, but we could have gone either way. So the fourth layer would be the deepest layer and then third, second, first would be the closest superficial. So again, we don't care if you ever memorize these muscles, but one great way to activate them is single leg balance exercises with your foot straight and your arch in neutral. And then all these muscles are going to do what they need to do to help stabilize the joints. And then if you're running and landing and all your biomechanics are properly and you got the range of motion in your big toe and your ankle, guess what? This will, these muscles will end up being healthier. So again, just food for thought, understand that there's four layers. This is where you get that burning sensation in the bottom of your foot. These are endurance muscles. So we need to spend some time on a single leg, hang there for a while, make it slow and steady. Again, it's why the model is the way it is. So kind of like we said, we trick you into a lot of accidental exercise. You don't even know you're putting in there. These are the type of muscles that you're working when you do your single leg balance exercises with those slow control tempos. And I think it's important, too, to think about people with bunions, um, you know, like what's happening at the bone structure, because when somebody's, you know, their big toe is actually going in towards the smaller toes. You know, you want to think about what's happening at all of those little joints we discussed earlier. And so with somebody like that. Um, because it's very, very common. I mean, you know, think about toe spreaders. You've got to think about really trying to lengthen some of those, those um, muscles that were causing that. And again, a lot of it can be due to their shoes. And so looking at that and really trying to spread out 
the, the, um, the bones and the muscles as much as you can to give, you know, give the proper movement of that. But, you know, too, some of that can be structural because it's, it's happened for so long that you personally are not going to be able to change that. However, you know, doing the toe spreaders or doing stuff like that can help at least try to activate some of the muscles that um, could be pulling it in to make it even worse long-term. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, if, if somebody's had dysfunction in their foot for 30, 40 years, the fact that you can make even a small improvement is statistically very relevant because it could have gotten worse. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is where it's so important to make sure that we're working on the foot and ankle. It is a crucial part of optimal human movement. Yes. Good point. <laughs> that means I'm done for the day. See? I know, right? And so, of course, when we talk about the extrinsic, these muscles are the anterior, posterior, and lateral compartments of the leg. And so these are responsible for the, the major actions that we're going to see of inversion, even or eversion, inversion, geez, uh, dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. And so um, do you want to add anything to that, Marty? No, I mean, these are the muscles that most people are more, com you know, understand the, and we talk about. But again, don't for th don't think that we didn't address those other muscles by doing all those single leg balance exercises mm -hmm. and things like that. It's just we don't need to target all those muscles individually. But this is really the bread and butter in the assessments and which ones are overactive and underactive. But like I said, you will do a lot of work in those intrinsic muscles, those four layers, by making sure you always put balance in. Well said. That's <laughs> I know. And then let's move on to the next slide. Then when we start talking a little bit more um, about the assessments component and as we have said throughout multiple webinars, <laughs> yes, probably at least once, probably a few times even today, the assessments are key because you want to see what's truly happening standing and during movement, as well as even just non-weight bearing. If you want to look at someone's foot before, while they're taking off their shoe, it's going to give you a good indication of what's happening at the foot and ankle before they even stand up. And then when they stand up and they're standing before you put them in the five kinetic chain checkpoints, kind of check out what's comfortable, you know, just before you even put them into proper alignment. And remember, we put everyone in the five kinetic chain checkpoints, even if it feels unnatural, it feels odd, you're going to hear all different comments that are going to be made. However, it's very important to start in the five kinetic chain checkpoints, because when you start adding the movement, you need to see where deviations occur. And so as long as the assessments are safe, and you're going to find that out by talking to them, getting the objective information, the most common assessments that we would see would be the overhead squat assessment. You can do it. In, so remember that if somebody has the feet turning out and they go into an excessive forward lean for you to find out if it's mainly kind of the excessive lean is coming more from the hips or more from the ankle. One way to identify that easily would be to do the heels elevated modified overhead squat because if you notice that it cleans up, meaning that they don't fall as far forward, then then you're going to notice that that it's probably more coming from the foot and ankle and not necessarily completely from the hip. So it's going to help you identify what area to focus on first. And then if it's safe for someone to do, look at the single leg squat, see if what's happening when they do that, do their, their arches cave in, do their knees go um, inwards? So do they go into knee valgus? If so, mark it. And then of course the weight bearing lunge. If you guys are new to the newer CES textbook, 
the weight bearing lunge can tell you a lot about what's happening with a, um, available dorsiflexion. Either they pass that or they fail that. And it's just giving you more information. And if they pass it, however, they have compensation, you know that it's more muscular. If not, it could be more of the overactive muscles that is not allowing that uh, movement. So if they pass it, you're focusing more on the weaker. If they can't get there, you're focusing a lot more on the overactive muscles. And then if you have been with us for a really long time, I know Marty uses it, I use it, and I still use my goniometer, which remember that's the human protractor, and you're able to truly measure joints and see from ideal, you know, where are they and, and how, how not ideal are they? Meaning is it significant or, you know, for example, if you don't have 20 degrees of dorsiflexion, but you've got 17, that's pretty good, you know? So you're not perfect, but you're pretty close. And so, you know, you can get so much information by just doing these assessments alone. And then once you gather all that information, you can truly design the best program for those clients. And so I know, Marty, we um, we actually provided pictures. But one key point is even if it's minimal, record it. And just think at that point, you've got that solutions table. So if you're new to NASM, you're you're still learning a lot about anatomy because it's a lot. Print out that solutions table because it truly will be your best friend. Without a doubt. I, I think you covered that. Fabus, this is what we do each and every day. And that's how we decide what programs that we're going to create. Yes. And so, again, we'll show you some pictures. These are not going to be something you probably have never seen before. So just our basic overhead squat. And then you can see on the last one, we just have the heels elevated. Um, if you notice that it cleans up. And when I say that is if they if they have an excessive lean and you notice the lean is not as excessive, then it's because they didn't have a, um, enough dorsiflexion and they were trying to say, look how low I can go on my squat. And then they praise you. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good one. That's a big one, I think often overlooked. And then of course the single leg squat, once again, you want to make sure it's safe. If you notice that their feet went out and they pronated, meaning the arches fell in and they had a bunch of things happening at the knee and the, in the hip may not be safe for someone, someone to perform this, your call, your judgment. And then if we go into the mobility assessments that you're going to see next, Here's just an image of someone doing the weight bearing lunge. As you can see, their, their front leg is about two inches away from the wall. Their back foot should also remain straight. So if you notice that there's excessive dorsiflexion external rotation, that's not ideal. So again, try to keep them in the proper five kinetic chain checkpoints. Move that front leg forward and then can their knee touch the wall? Yes or no? Pass or fail? Super simple, very quick to do, good information. And then of course, here we go, Marty. I'll let you take it from here. <laughs> yeah. So when we look at the range of motion of the first MTP joint, so you'll see the picture on the left is if you were doing a goniometer. And Wendy and I both know a story of a very famous basketball player who will go unnamed, who was working with somebody and had hip problems, hip problems, hip problems. And they kept treating the hip, kept treating the hip. Well, lo and behold, when somebody else got their hands on them, the opposite side, first MTP joint had like 15 degrees, which is minimal especially at an NBA level compared to 70. So as they landed, all the weight would shift. And this is a larger individual. So imagine the repetitiveness, all that weight shifting without them even consciously knowing, of course, the hip's going to hurt. Clean up the first toe, go through some of the stuff we talked about. And all of a sudden, guess what? That opposite hip feels better. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. We gave you some ways to look at it with the goniometer and or in the kneeling position. 
So this is why lunges are important. Other ex kneeling hip flexor, you can sneak some of that in if it's appropriate for the person to be in these positions. But you, if you want to be active, and active could be just even walking a lot, you've got to get that range of motion in the first MTP joint. So this is another miss I see a lot of in fitness. Mm -hmm. People kind of go right past it. But this is very important to understand. And I've even taught some people how to do some stretching with a band just on their first MTP joint you know, yeah. teaching the range of motion, not painful. And that way they're kind of working it each and every day themselves. I 100% agree with that. And this is the very first thing I do. If I have somebody, especially if they're one of our NBA guys, this is the very first joint I look at every single day that they come in to see me. Not, not every four to six weeks. I look at their joints every single day to make sure before they get off the table that we have done some proper corrective exercise, because to me that it is that important. Without a doubt. So again, I, I put it in a lot of times just in my kneeling hip flexor sequences I do. So, uh, you know, because I know I can get into that position comfortably. You know, so there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And then here, dorsiflexion, that 20 degrees. So it's not, you know, it's not a lot of motion, but you got to have that 15 to 20 degrees because as you go with your foot on the ground, if you lock up, everything's going to go up the chain. So whether it's the foot has to turn out, whether the knee moves, the hip, so it's crucial that we have that ideal range of motion. I think if you've been with NESM for a while, I think you're pretty comfortable with how important having that ankle motion is. But now tie that with the 70 degrees of MTP and having the stability in those intrinsic muscles in the foot and arch. And now we're really cooking where somebody can, you know, and kind of I'll pause in the sense that everyone wants to work harder, burn more calories and do things. But if your foot and ankle is not working, and you've got bad biomechanics at the foot and ankle, good luck trying to run, good luck trying to jump, good luck trying to do high intensity, good luck trying to do any of those things without having some discomfort at some point. So to me, getting that healthy foot and ankle, and then obviously we talk about neutral spine all the time. If you can get those moving, it opens up the future for this individual on what they can do from a fitness standpoint. But we've got to get that going before they do too much intensity because this is where people end up I just don't feel good. I'm always sore. Things hurt. Well, yeah, you're, you're driving a car that's out of alignment. You know, it's not going to be good. So that's why we focus so much. And we thought that this would be a good two part series just to kind of refresh, throw some new stuff in and make sure that everyone knows uh, how to have a good program for this. And if you don't have a goniometer, that's totally fine. Because again, we have provided different mobility assessments that you can do if you're not comfortable because Guys, if you've never used the goniometer, there are a ton of different muscles and you have to be very, very specific in your placement. It does give you really good information, but these other types of mobility assessments that, you know, visually, if you're looking at, do they get to a certain position, whether it's in their torso, their ankle, their knee, whatever it is, um, you can design a very well-rounded program. And so don't think that we're just throwing in the goni to, to say, you know, hey, we can do it because we're not saying that. We're saying if you do have the skills to use a goniometer, it's fantastic information to have. And this is what you want to look at. If not, we've provided some other alternatives for those of you guys that don't have it and don't know how to use it. Um, but at the end of the day, Marty and I are going to spend a ton of time really focusing I say a ton of time. We're going to spend another another webinar with you guys on how to correct these imbalances that you may see. And um, as you can see, this is just one picture we throw in or threw in there. So you can see just how complex 
the entire area that we're talking about, not just even the small areas that we discussed with the intrinsic muscles. You'll notice those, those aren't in there. But when this is more looking at the lateral compartments and the different, you know, the way that the muscles themselves all interconnect with one another. And um, so we're going to literally help you design programs, what to what to roll, what to stretch, how to activate certain muscles to increase range of motion in certain joints in certain areas. And so I'm hoping that you guys will tune in because I really believe that next week, if if this is all kind of new to you, I'm hoping that you'll really enjoy it. 100%. I'm excited to put it together for next week. Yeah. So our, our key takeaways, um, we don't have assessments as first. However, you're going to notice they're still in there. But they're always there. I know the multiple joints and muscles make up the foot and ankle complex, as we just discussed. Um, 26 bones. You've got, you know, 20 to 30 muscles, depending on if you're looking at the lateral, um, the different uh, compartments. And then you've got the assessments. As we talked about, you're choosing what's going to be most beneficial for you to gather the information that you need. But very important that even if it's minimal, as your clients get tired, you're going to see those more and more. Um, and so it's important to recognize, even if it's slight, that you want to start correcting that. So therefore, you don't have those problems later. And we will go over even more areas to work on to help correct some of the faulty movement patterns that you're going to see. Yep, absolutely. And I'm even spending more time on my own foot and ankle, because again, I want to be able to do these explosive movements and run and jump, et cetera. So I just, I got a program for it. Oh, and I love just to take my foot and just kind of like spread them apart. Like we learned how to do that in massage therapy and you can do it to yourself. Don't do it to your clients without, cause it kind of is, feels kind of creepy, <laughs> especially if you don't have a license to do that. Um, but it can feel really good to just kind of spread out those muscles that sometimes we, we just totally neglect. Without a doubt. Awesome. Yes. Give our uh, contact information. I think we should. So if you guys want to reach out to me directly, you can email me as always at wendy.bats at nasm.org, or you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. And my information is right there, marty.miller at nasm.org, and then Instagram, dr.martymiller72. So Wendy, thanks for you know working with me to put this together. I think it was some great information. Looking forward to the feedback and looking forward to next week. Me too.